1: Greg Curry is serving a life sentence in Ohio due to his alleged participation in the Lucasville uprising in 1993. He was just transferred to a new facility, and his supporters share the following update. Greg called from Toledo CI, and he sounded excited about being there, being on a real yard with geese, yes, the geese have landed there, and going to a chow hall to eat together with other people. He also was excited that he was no longer accompanied by guards whenever he leaves his single cell and that he can use the phone more or less when he wants to during the day. There is so much he has missed for the last 25 years that he was entombed in the Ohio Supermax that is called Ohio State Penitentiary. Greg also had a message for all the supporters, thanking everyone for getting him transferred and that he hoped that even though he was no longer in OSP, He hoped people would not forget about his plight to regain his freedom his release after being falsely accused and wrongfully convicted since 1993 even though toledo ci has the same level four as what greg was quantified for as security level there are differences between ohio state penitentiary level four max and other maximum prisons in ohio for instance At OSP, Greg can only go in an outside cage for yard. He can only have visits behind glass, whereas in other maximum prisons, there is apparently normal visiting. He can go to a chow hall to eat together with others, but at OSP, he could only eat alone in his cell. It will be a big change, and there will be different challenges, but there will also be opportunities for gaining justice and doing programs and such. There will be different staff and people in captivity. This is what Greg wrote, quote, finally, since 1993, I'm being returned to a normal prison. I'm looking forward to yard, chow hall, and being away from this repressive place, End quote. We understand from different sources that Greg is already in Toledo CI, even though the inmate locator says he is still at OSP. His new address and info about the prison, including phone numbers for the warden, how to send money, write, etc., can be found at the following URL, www.drc.ohio.gov forward slash T-O-C-I. Once again, www.drc.ohio.gov forward T-O-C-I. T-O-C-I. Greg also made a statement in solidarity with the Vaughn 17, who are on trial in Delaware for a prison uprising last year. Here are Greg's words. My clenched fist salute to the brothers known as the Vaughn 17. I personally know how you felt leading up to the day you made demands to be treated like human beings. I know the state's abusive response. I know the journey you will face in the weeks to come as your trials begin, with attorneys underpaid, unprepared, and unenthused. I know what it's like to be skeptical of the criminal justice system and have the skepticism proven true at the cost of your personal liberty. I'd recommend you enter as much as you can onto the court record, even over your attorney's objection for future appeals. Trust that you're on the right side of history. That's your armor. The system can't give you victory. You must take it. Continue to fight. Continue to demand human rights so the next Attica, Lucasville, or Vaughan won't be necessary. That's how we win. Freedom first, Greg Curry. The Indiana Department of Corrections is alleging that four mailroom workers at Miami Correctional Facility were exposed to an unknown substance. This occurs as IDOC is defending a controversial mail policy, which bans most correspondents from Indiana facilities. IDOC claims the policy is necessary to keep smuggled drugs out of prisons. Critics point out, though, that most drugs are smuggled in by guards, and that the mail ban primarily serves to isolate prisoners from their families and reduce access to First Amendment-protected political and religious materials. A lawsuit by prisoners is challenging this policy now. In recent months, Groups of guards apparently suffered from mass hypochondria in both Ohio and Pennsylvania. Dozens of guards believed they had been poisoned by materials in the mailroom and even exhibited general symptoms until doctors established that no poisonings had occurred. According to the Vallarta Daily News, the U.S. company BlackRock Incorporated owns and is operating a federal prison in northern Mexico. BlackRock is the planet's largest asset manager and has been expanding further into infrastructure investment globally. In recent years, BlackRock has extended its infrastructure investments mostly to toll roads, wind power, and pipelines. This foray into prisons is BlackRock's first. Inmates began arriving at the prison in August. By the end of that month, the facility, called CPS Coahuila, held 139 people. The Mexican government is responsible for security at the prison, whereas a BlackRock subsidiary runs such operations as food and maintenance. To cover construction, food, and other types of maintenance, BlackRock will receive $65.5 million or more each year for 20 years. Mexico's prison population has declined since 2016, when a new justice system took effect. Today, fewer crimes result in automatic pretrial detention.
0: Today, we're sharing an interview with Talila Lewis and Dustin Gibson, two organizers and researchers addressing the intersection of disability and incarceration. After TL describes the high stakes of being deaf in prison, they move on to sketch the ways that children of color are disabled across society and push towards feeling inept and being housed in prison. They speak a bit about the organization H.E.R.D., helping educate to advance the rights of the deaf. We'll be talking more about their work and more about the history of disability and incarceration in a later episode. But for now, here's T.L. and Dustin to get us started.
2: HERD is Helping Educate to Advance the Rights of Deaf Communities is a volunteer dependent organization uh, that I co-founded with community in the DMV area, DC, Maryland, Virginia area in 2011. Our work is varied and intricate and we created a database of police brutality against deaf, deafblind, deaf disabled, and hard of hearing folks. Um, it's the only database of police violence against deaf, deafblind folks that has ever existed. And we're building upon it. We've been building upon it for about five years now. So that's a, it's a Google doc. It's in English, Spanish, we're working on a ASL, American Sign Language Translation. Um, but it's readily available for folks who are interested in learning more about that. Then we have a database, uh, again, that I, I actually created it back in 2010 um, and volunteers um, have been helping with populating it and finding incarcerated folks who are deaf, deaf-blind, deaf-disabled. But the large scope of the problem is that the carceral system uh, has not been tracking the location or accommodation needs or prevalence of deaf folks who are Incarcerated. So most folks are like, oh my gosh, deaf people aren't incarcerated. And I'm like, absolutely, they are. In fact, disproportionately so, in the same way that disabled folks are disproportionately, and many of the deaf folks are deaf and disabled, are disproportionately incarcerated because the carceral system, again, wasn't set up to work with or support folks who are deaf and disabled. So we find Lots of folks who are literally snatched from the streets for using sign language, uh, in particular, folks who are deaf and black, deaf blind, deaf disabled, um, folks, indigenous folks who are deaf, um, who obviously are living at the intersections of um, kind of all of the quote unquote at risk factors by, you you know, for running into trouble with the law. Yeah, so we created this database, and the goal obviously is not just to. Um, find our folks, but to provide support for them, their loved ones, to create an outlet to the outside world. And so the other large component of this that must be addressed is that um, deaf folks, once they enter the carceral system, and by carceral system I'm talking about jails and prisons, um, have absolutely no access to anyone. Um, No video phones, no interpreters, no access to family members, no mental or medical support. And so that's been a large issue. So for about seven years, I've been working, um, trying to get the Department of Justice and or the Federal Communications Commission to mandate that video phones, caption telephones, uh, auxiliary aids that would allow for hard of hearing folks to be able to hear uh, with their residual hearing on phones to mandate that all prisons across the nation, all jails, quote unquote, detention facilities, et cetera, install video phones, right? Right now, I mean, gosh, Less than 20 prisons across the nation have video phones. And so deaf folks are literally losing their minds as a result of communication deprivation. So earlier, we were listening to um, formerly incarcerated folks talk about uh, food deprivation, light deprivation, and the, the psychological and physical and mental toll that that takes. But um, understand that communication deprivation, I call it um, virtual solitary confinement. Um, so, deaf folks who are even in the general population are, you know, having to figure out ways to communicate with themselves, their other selves, right? Because um, that's what happens when you deprive people of, of communication in these sorts of um, perpetual um, and violent ways. Um, so it's just another form of torture by the carceral system, right? Like, So we think about, as hearing privileged people, we think often about um, some of the other forms of deprivation and violence that are... Drawn against the bodies of folks who are affected by the carceral system, family members, and there are there are these other ways that the carceral system affects folks who have different disabilities um, that must be must be named and addressed. Uh, utility is not necessarily a, the goal, right, of the database. It's like, yo, our people live. The database is is the utility in many regards, right? That no one has been they our folks have literally disappeared. Um, and it's as though they never existed, but they exist. So the work is the database, but then also utilizing that to um, more recently, we've created like monthly um, snapshots of some of the violence that our folks are conveying to us that's occurring inside our jails and prisons all across the nation. So, you know, on any given month, I think last month we got over uh, 150 correspondences, whether it was, um, we set up a, the only Um, hotline for deaf incarcerated people so only so few folks have access to a TTY or a video phone or some other means of communicating with us. Most send uh, as best as they can mail or other incarcerated folks might support them in writing a letter to us because a lot of them struggle with English because ASL is a language. So if your first or only language is American Sign Language, then you might struggle with English Um, and in fact folks who are in carceral systems because we understand even when you look at hearing folks who are incarcerated, often they struggle with the English language, uh, might struggle with literacy. Um, the same holds true with incarcerated deaf folks, um, but in terms, again, hearing privilege allows hearing folks who are incarcerated to access supports in other ways, so spoken language. I might talk to my cellie and ask for support, but a deaf person who uses only sign can't necessarily obtain that kind of support, um, and of course the prisons aren't providing interpreters. So. I know this is a lot of information and it's probably very difficult for most people to process. Um, It's also hard for me to package in a way that most folks can follow because it's like, I don't know, maybe Dustin wants to add something.
3: TL is wearing a shirt that says there are black people in the future. And that's like the reality that I've witnessed on the ground. We're situated here in Pittsburgh where there's resistance and pushback to that. And it's happening to folks on the inside in ways that are explicit in ways that we can articulate violence that's relatable but out here it's happening in, in different ways in understanding that a lot of the low-income neighborhoods in which are occupied now by black folks are toxic in so many different ways so the community centers that we organize with here on the east end will have water fountains shut down for weeks at a time throughout the summer because our lead levels are 23 or 24 parts to the billion without notice from the feds or from the city. So, like, all of that, all of the reasons in which people go into the carceral system or when they get out, like, that's kind of where I stand in the gap at in um, a lot of the folks that I work with. So, it's it, when we talked about, like, the interconnectedness of housing struggle and 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 food whether it be a food desert or food insecurity or the food that you're eating is toxic um all of those things that happen in like a focused way in the prison happen in our communities so yeah that disability is like really fluid throughout all of that like housing it's a huge thing to have accessible housing and also developing disabilities based off of, like, the toxicity of whatever the environment is, um, or from the violence that's inflicted in the community based on the conditions that folks are living under to create it. So a lot of people that have disabilities in some of these areas that we work in are folks that has had, like, violence happen to them physically. So what disability looks like, it's completely different for Black folks, for low-income folks, um, in the schools. Like I think about, we have like federal laws, like IDEA, five hundred four Act, which which gives us special education and allows us to have individual education plans for students. But what that looks like for Black kids is completely different. It's behavioral. Um, it's emotional. It's all of these like unchecked traumas that they get shuffled through that system. And it happens like suspension and like all of those are the surface level ways that kids get pushed out. But it, it, it's enacted uh, implicitly, explicitly on a daily basis due to the the, the educators being 85 percent like young white girls from privileged areas and not knowing or recognizing uh, what a reaction to a physical condition of their life might look like. So when I say stand in the gap, it's like not only like us being like strategic in our systematic approach to undo what the carceral system has done and and how it exists, but to also, like, be there for folks so they don't actually go there. And then when they get back, that not everybody wants to be an organizer. Not everybody should have to be an organizer. Um, like, we're forced to be activists in ways that are not, like, natural or healthy, um, and it's not okay. And for those folks that don't want to be that, their their stories are are even more important, Um because they will they will be lost, um, so so finding ways to incorporate their experience into all of our work, whether it be trying to get a K through five suspension ban at a public school system, or um, attempting to get a uh, uh, hundred different units that were deemed um, not livable and given to a development company like on the east like whatever that work is and our organizing effort is to attempt to get those voices into it and also connect folks that are on the inside to to like hope sometime and like just like a real conversation where it's not like this service provider going in there to say like yo when you re-enter the community in three months like these are all the things that you can go and access like but it's like to you know give them a realistic view of like how hard this is out here which i don't i, I find doesn't happen a, a lot and then to be there too like 3 a.m and like we just got done listening to somebody that had had done almost 26 years in angola um and he talked about uh i don't want to tell his story but like it's he had moments after he got out so like there's there, there there's no formal service for those moments that really takes community. So like I, I view our work to be out here is to build that community that is, is actually supportive, much like TL. Like I don't know how to like paint this in a way that I can talk about how important it is in a few minutes. So um,
2: Brian Steven talks about being in proximity to folks who we're serving and with herd, we're a volunteer in an organization. I literally work all night, all day, which goes back to the the nature of kind of the work that community builders or social justice engineers or folks who are really doing the work, like that. How how that we can't we can't work enough. Like there's not enough time in a day in a life that we can do to reverse the really jacked up systems the violence that these systems have created upon our, our communities and our bodies and our loved ones. And so that's important. But um, you know, with HERD, because we're a volunteer-dependent organization, often you know, when folks reach out, it's just this, us, us connecting with them and, and saying there's nothing we can do about that. That in and of itself is more than anyone has done for deaf-incarcerated people since like before we existed. And that's wild. Because there are national associations that claim to serve disabled people. There are national associations that claim to serve deaf people. And yet, when you look at the margins of the margins, they refuse to even talk to our incarcerated folks, right? Like, what does that say about the systems that exist, about the folks who are being centered in the systems that exist for quote unquote supporting and disability and deaf rights, et cetera? Like, so there's a lot of our work that that directly goes to challenging the systems that have Allegedly been set up to support the very people that we're supporting with no funds, no resources, no connections, no networks. Um, we're just doing it, right? So that's one thing I want to name. And the fact that the folks, my folks who are part of Herd, like we're a tiny band of organ- like just tiny. There's like less than a handful of us who, are, I mean, I've been doing this like for 10, 12 years almost now. Um, So that's the first thing and it's like all that we have is heart right like it's love and freedom and that's that's what drives us so that's really important um it's not about money we don't make no money from any of this work you know in fact we use the little bit of money that we do have to support our loved ones and folks that we don't even we've never met right but that deserve deserve some time and attention so that's the first thing the second thing is about education which dustin brought up earlier and uh, you came to our presentation yesterday that was called Disability Justice, a Requisite for Abolition. Deaf and disabled folks represent anywhere between 50 to 60 percent of the folks killed by cops every, every year. Obviously, that in that group, disproportionately folks of color or negatively racialized folks is how I prefer to term it. Deaf and disabled folks uh, represent the vast majority of the carceral system anywhere, depending on the studies you choose to look at, anywhere between 50 to 90% of the carceral systems, that's jails and prisons. That doesn't even include foster systems, which feed directly into the carceral system. That doesn't include ed systems, which feed directly into foster and carceral systems. And so that's important to name, and it almost never is named by folks on any side of the aisle, right? But Sarah Novick uh, is an author. She recently wrote a piece called The English to Prison Pipeline specifically focusing on HERD's work, my organization's work, but also um, the nature of the beast that is our education system right now and how it inherently, um, kind of supporting some of the notions that we put to you yesterday about the ableist nature of our quote-unquote education systems, um, racist ableist natures of our education system, classist, racist, ableist, natures of our education system, and that we've created a system that prioritizes folks who think in a particular way, who breathe in a particular way, who move in a particular way, who've lived in particular neighborhoods, who have particularized experiences, whose ancestors had a particular um, place of dominance in society, right? Um, And so, of course, everyone else is always going to be subjugated, right? And so we've actually written that into our education systems. And so Sarah Novick writes about it as, as related directly to deaf folks saying this idea of needing to be able to read right like because that's the push right must be literate everybody needs to know English and you must be a great orator, and you must she says well if our community naturally uses a sign language what are you doing and what are you saying to those children who won't ever pick up English right there's nothing wrong with not picking up the English language okay do something else type on a computer Use your hands to communicate, right? Like, there's all of these different ways of communicating and existing, um, but we've prioritized um, a very white, classist, um, you know, ableist way of thinking about what does it mean to communicate and to be quote-unquote intelligent. And so one of the slides we had up yesterday was um, really challenging the notions of quote-unquote intelligence and achievement and production and productivity, all of that which is inherently ingrained in what we believe is Um, how we educate children, right, like, so, um, and if you force that upon a child, the trauma that comes to a child from feeling like they can never measure up, right, whether we're talking about black children, black disabled children, and never measuring up doesn't mean that you're not bright, doesn't mean that you're not capable in other ways, right, it means that you haven't been able to sit down and take a standardized test that measures absolutely nothing, right, but that we've been told is the way, the way of the world in terms of who is bright and who is not bright and who should be uh, put on the other track and who should be elevated to this, you know, gifted track or whatever they call them nowadays, right? There's all these fun terms. But the trauma that comes from a child reaching and never being able to attain in the way that is seen as adequate to the world, that's traumatic. And it makes, of course, people are like, like, what's the point of me continuing going to school? Or the harassment from the teachers who are mostly, like Dustin mentioned, uh, white uh, women uh, who also haven't unpacked their own privileges, haven't dealt with their own issues. The trauma of going into a space like that, you know, it's its not often discussed. And like trauma, again, unaddressed, leads to other consequences. The case Peter P. versus Compton Unified School District is is a, a landmark case. its It's still kind of working its way through the civil legal system right now, but it, it's beautiful in that it, it, it names the fact that children who are living in perpetual poverty, children who are living in communities where food insecure, income insecure, housing insecure, environmentally toxic, certainly they will have disabilities. We don't even need a formal diagnosis. We don't need to go talk to a doctor about it. They don't need to go to a psychiatrist. We know that they will experience disability because they have trauma that has been unaddressed and the education system must account for that, right? Like that's what the, that's what the lawyers, and, and it's not just school children uh, who are parties to that case, it's children and their educators. So educators and teachers, because the educators are experiencing vicarious trauma just from having to try to support and love on these children right like that's wild like that that's a novel idea and like all of us who are on the ground have been trying to say that for years and years and years and now finally lawyers come in and ride on the horse and you know file a case and everyone's like you're right right but like so first naming that folks on the ground folks affected have been saying this for literally generations quite literally generations of black and poor folks indigenous indigenous folks oh my god have been naming this for generations and like that it's just now, I guess, and I think the case was filed in 2016, just now getting to a place where everyone's like, oh, there might be something to that. Because, you know, some white folks um, and some other folks, and not only white folks, but folks in positions of power have decided to, to talk about it, right? So, um, yeah, I think folks need to definitely look at what how our education system is setting up our children um, to feel inferior across the board, whether whatever marginality, and particularly at the intersections of marginalities. That's where our children are feeling inept through no fault of their own. And, and that is our failure, not theirs. Right? And the same is true of folks who are in the carceral system. Um, we failed them, they didn't fail us. Right, um, If they had the support, if they had the love, if they had the trauma, trauma-informed care, if they had the trauma-infused education, where would they be and where would we be? Right? If systems weren't set up around how much money can we make off the bodies of these undesirables, where would they be and where would we be? Certainly not where we are today. And I think those are the questions and the prompts that should be asked.
0: This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at KiteLine at WFHB.org. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to tell your story or to record a message to a loved one behind bars at 812-269-2512. You can support our efforts and the prisoners we connect with through our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. You can follow us on all social media platforms by searching for KiteLine Radio or find us on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, its contributors or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5:30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.